and we are live from the Empire of Lies, an oasis of free speech, open debate, and great conversation in Biden's fascist liberal order. I'm I'm investigative journalist Lee Stranahan. Got it out eventually. This is the backstory. And hey, Rod, how you doing? I'm doing well, Lee. Can't complain. How about yourself? Looks like a great show today. I'm okay. The headlines when I listen to the news, it seems to be a lot of places. Do you, do you know what the top headline is right now? Um, I've seen a lot of... Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Joe Biden at the Detroit Auto Show. When that's the yeah. lead headline, yeah. it's a slow news day. Would you agree? Yeah, I think that's a deflection, Lee. I think it's a deflection. But I don't think it's... What do you think the top story is today? I'll bet you think it's the same thing I think. Uh, the economy? That's what I'm... That's what, uh... That's what I would... That's what I would say. Well, I would kind of go with Mike Lindell, the My Pillow guy. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, no, yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, the My Pillow guy has phone seats. He was in a drive-through, a Hardee's, and the FBI seized his phone. And I was just say it's another step towards open democratic totalitarianism. It's frightening. Do you agree with that? Yeah, no, I definitely, you know, um, what's Mike, you know, I saw the charges are uh, conspiracy. Which conspiracy to do what? Yes. Conspiracy. It was working with someone. But, you know, what I know, he was an outspoken critic of our election system. And apparently, they were looking for stuff related to Dominion. Did you see that? Yeah, yeah, of course. You know, and CNN talks about it all the time about the lawsuit and how that's going. And criticizing Dominion voting systems used to be something the left did. Remember that a few years ago? Barack Obama, when he was running for president, said, uh, we already know our elections are rigged. Yes. So, but no one's going to be seizing his phone. Now, we have a great show today. First time guest joining us in the first hour. And I'm seeing the, forgive me, Rod, my eyesight's bad. It's Ed. Who's our first guest? Tell us who our first guest is. We have Ed Martin from the Phyllis Phyllis Schlafly Eagle Foundation. That's hard to get out, but we have Ed Martin as our first guest. Yeah, Phyllis Schlafly's Eagle Forum is a famous conservative group. So you say he's a frequent guest on ball lines, correct? Correct. So we look forward to talking to him. And if he sees the same fascist threat from the Democrats that I do, I'm sure he does. And in the second hour, we have our friend Ted Rawl joining us from New York. And we're taking your calls. I'll show 202-521-1320. And Rod, what's the name of the show? You're listening to the best show on the radio, The Backstory.
Now, when that story broke last night about the My Pillow guy, Mike Lindell, getting his phone seized, it was all over Twitter. And he's obviously a big advertiser with Fox and with uh, Bannon's uh, show, War Room, a name Bannon stole from Alex Jones. You know that, by the way. Yeah, that's a fact. And that was something Roger Stone was upset about. He had a show called War Room on Alex Jones' Infowars. And then Bannon launched a show called War Room. And in a sense, it's a common phrase. But on the other hand, he did kind of rip off the name of a show. And that's why I was somewhat surprised that Alex had Bannon on his show. Did you see that? Yeah, he's had him on his show, um, i say at least two or three different times I've seen over the past, I think, since the beginning of the summer. Now, uh, good for him. Uh, you know, here's the thing. If Bannon called me, which is slightly less likely than my ex-wife calling me, but if Bannon called me and said, hey, Lee, can I come on your show? Rod, what would you say? Oh, I'd say, sure, come on. Let's, uh, you know, what time are you available? Yeah, exactly right. And I would try to have a pleasant conversation with him because I don't like to get into fights with guests. But I, I don't criticize Alex for having Bannon on. But I'm a little surprised. But but also, it shows that all the attacks on Alex Jones have not worked. The fact that he has the number one best-selling book in the country show that the media's and the Democrats' attempts to discredit him. What I said to you a few weeks ago is I said, whatever lawsuits they file against Alex or anything, he still has the credibility of a lot of people. And I think his book selling so many copies shows that the people listen to Alex and they can't take that away. Do, do you agree? Yeah, they keep making him stronger, Lee. I mean, they keep attacking him. You know, I mean, they keep going with the uh, Sandy Hook thing, which was, you know, it's about to be 10 years. And that's that's your biggest attack on uh, on Alex Jones that he, you know, that he questioned Sandy Hook. I mean, you know, now if you question the election, you know, the feds are going to come stop you at the drive through. They're going to come bust down your door and stick a rifle in your face. So anything that you question now is, uh, you know, it's against the law, I guess. It's, yeah, it's very frightening. Now, speaking of frightening, let's go. We're going to go with the second clip first, the Memphis one. No, we can't. Was, yeah, no, we didn't get time to. We didn't get time to edit that. Sorry, Lee. Yeah. I thought I saw that in the clips. Yeah, we have to play it tomorrow. Okay. So, yeah. what do we have for? Is there an update? The uh, the uh, safety act. The safety act. That's all. So we'll save that for Ed, right? Correct. Yeah. So. Well, it's it's we had a clip I was going to play, but it's very hard because you need to beat most of it and we'll play it tomorrow. But how would you describe that clip that we're not going to play until tomorrow, Rod? Describe it in your own words. Uh, in my own words, uh, you know, I've been to Memphis. Uh, I had an ex-girlfriend from Memphis. I went to college with a, with a, a lot of guys from Memphis, uh, surprisingly, like at least seven, seven or eight guys from Memphis. Um, you know, uh, a lot of people, a lot of people celebrate, you know, living in the hood or, or the ghetto and, 
um, uh, this there's a hood vlogs. There's a popular YouTube website called Hood Vlogs that goes around the country and interview people in different hoods, like uh, New Jersey, you know, Newark, New Jersey, or you know, in, in Philadelphia, in my neighborhood. And you know, a lot of people like to promote that you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't come to our city. And if you do come to our city, you know, uh, you might get carjacked, you might get robbed, you might get murdered. And uh, in this Memphis clip that we'll play tomorrow, they're pretty much telling you stay downtown. But as soon as you leave downtown, e either way you go, any. Uh, something bad can happen to you uh and it, people are here tomorrow and um yeah no i you know i don't really uh adhere to that i think you know i think i don't think that's cool to be promoting all that but you know some people do well i i think it should be a warning to people memphis obviously is a big tourist city you've got graceland there you've also got where martin luther king was shot uh and you've got great barbecue and all sorts of stuff. And so Memphis, and we pointed out that it's one, it's the most dangerous city in the country, right? I think there's a competition between a couple of cities, but yeah, no, Memphis, I, uh, you know, when I've been to Memphis, I consider it like the Philadelphia at the South. So uh, I felt at home uh, in a weird way. And uh, the only thing different is there's, uh, there's gangs, Bloods, Crips, uh, GDs and stuff like that. And then, you know, in Philly, there's not really gangs. So, you know, you got to be a little cautious about that. Yeah, no. And this guy was talking on hood, this hood vlog about saying basically if you come into Memphis and we see an out-of-state plate, they target you. And as soon as we, we see an out-of-state plate, if you're in the wrong neighborhood, watch out. And it, it was it was not so much a warning, I'd say, as a description of the conditions. And it should frighten anyone, because how hard is it to go the wrong a couple blocks from Beale Street if you don't own the area? Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, Beale Street's kind of like South Street in Philly, where there was a shooting earlier in the summer. Uh, you know, like uh, like I, you know, uh, I let the secret out the bag. Lee, sometimes we uh, we talk before the show, but um, yeah, you know, I've, I've been to Beale Street. Uh, you can't drive down Beale Street; it's like cobblestone and all that. It's very tourist drinking and restaurants and all that. But uh, you know, I've gone down it and I've gone, I've made a left and I made a right, and you can go about about maybe two, maybe two and a half blocks, and then you can notice like, okay, maybe I need to turn back around. And that's me, you know, just with my uh, my. Spot sense of uh you know this this might get a little a little sketchy over here but other people they don't have that uh that awareness so you know you can walk into some danger and i was thinking the question i have is and, and i'll throw it out to you we'll play a clip tomorrow but basically it's saying gangs will target you with an outstate plate in memphis here's the question i have what would you actually do about it what would you do about that if you're in charge of Memphis, magically, Rod, what the hell do you do? Yeah, no, I'll, I'll admitly, I don't, I don't really have a, a grasp of gang culture. I mean, I understand it. It's, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, people call it a brotherhood or a family and whatnot. But uh, you know, uh, I don't really understand gang culture like that. But it just on, you know, coming from Philly, and let's say you see California plates or uh, Nebraska plates, and you're targeting these people. What do you do? You're right. Um, I don't know. I don't have the answer to that. Um, you know, in 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 a sense, uh, you know, you use all the surveillance you've already established to uh, make sure that uh, you could try to uh, uh, stop it. You know, as much as possible. What you don't do is defund the police, right? 
That's what you clearly don't do. And what you don't right. do is get rid of cash bail and put, you know, the, the thing they found is most, there's not a large number of criminals. There's a small number of criminals who commit crimes over and over again. Does that make sense? Right. Like if you see uh, burglaries in an area, it's not like 15 people are committing burglaries. It's like one person is probably committing 15 burglaries. Does that make sense mathematically? Yeah, I would say it's the recidivism rate. Uh, you know, in you know somewhere like Philadelphia, a lot of people are getting caught doing these crimes. They they might go away for you know if if they're not released immediately, they might go away for a week or two or a couple of weeks and come right back out and do it again. But also the the young people. I mean, you're seeing. Uh, 12, 13, 11, 14 year olds, 15 year olds uh, doing these crimes that they see uh, career criminals doing. So it's uh, it's a two tier thing. It's it's the recidivism of these criminals who keep getting out and also young people who are doing the crime as well. Yeah, no. And it really is. It's one thing to point out the problem. It's another thing to try to solve it. And I really have not. It's easy to blame Democrats. Democrat mayors or whatever, and say that's a problem. But you could be a Republican mayor. What do you do? But Lee, one thing I would say is that a lot of these people, nobody's claiming, just not on the, you know, these 30, you know, something criminals, but the young people, nobody's claiming like, hey, that's my child, that's my grandson, that's my niece, that's my nephew. You're not seeing people come out and say, you know, uh, he's not like that. You know, he didn't. I didn't raise him like that. You're just seeing in the news, you know, and, and, and you know, just you know, from Philly, fourteen year old, thirteen year old. You saw uh, earlier in the summer the the seventy three year old man that was killed by all these kids. One of them was like ten, who was hit with a cone, and you know, they, they, no, nobody's coming out to claim these children. These, this is my child, and I didn't raise him this way or that. It's just you're just seeing the headlines and the age, and that's it. Nobody, but nobody's coming out to claim. You know, who these children are related to or, or where they live, you know what I mean? Like, so they have to live somewhere with somebody. Right. And, and that's why it's a problem, I think, beyond simple politics. You know, a lot of people are seeing these videos of, like people, young people ask questions like, you know, what's the capital of the U.S. or how many states we have? You've seen those videos, right, Ron? Correct. And college yeah. students are like, I, I don't know. And it shows how dumb college students are. But these are beyond that. These are people, you ask them, what's the capital of the United States? And they steal your microphone, right? Yeah, that's no, a, yeah. That's, that's a different level. Yeah, they do. What do you do with that? I don't know. The, um, you know, I've been, I've been saying, and maybe it sounds messed up, but charge the parents. Yeah. Well, I think it's certainly time to look at different solutions. Because the problem is really scary. But let's go to phone calls. 202-521-1320. Our friend Tarif is online. Go ahead, Tarif. What's on your mind? Uh, how y'all doing? Thanks for taking my call, Lee. <clears throat> First, I'd like to say free drawing signs. I have some comments. Um, Diane Sher, Sher is running for Senate in uh, New York. She's challenging Chuck Schumer. She's saying Chuck Schumer don't want to debate her. He's constantly running away from her. Um, they're putting out on um, like commercials uh, about um, downstairs putting out commercials 
things of that nature. And she's trying to, um, she's running as an independent. She's trying to get Truck Schumer to um, debate her. She had got 66,000 signatures so she can put on, be put on a list in New York, which is good. Um, she needs some more backing, of course. So if y'all want to follow her, look at um, her campaign, you have to go to Share uh, for Senate. That's S-A-R-E-F-O-R Senate.com. So you can uh, donate to her campaign. She's part of the uh, the Lynn LaRouche organization, the Center Institute. And also, she's one of the people that's on Ukrainian blacklist, too. You know? So, yeah. Um, my other comments is dealing with Ukraine. In the, the overall, that like the next months, the the coming months before the November election, four things are going to happen that's not going to be good for the uh, the Democrats. There, of course, Powell going to raise the interest rate to point seventy five or maybe a whole percent. That's number one. Number two, the Saudi uh, the Saudis the Saudis is going to take a hundred thousand barrels off the oil of um of um oil off the market. And they also talking about raising it to maybe more than a hundred thousand barrel uh, 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 barrels of oil coming off the market. Then you have the situation in Ukraine where <clears throat> it's starting to turn around and you rush a favor again over there. And they starting to hit those power plants with those cruise missiles is making it hard for the Ukrainian troops to move around. And it's, it's going to be hard for them. Then you didn't then. then on top of that, and then you got the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, going to do their own EQ in China, which is going to make inflation over there rise up. Uh, it's going to increase inflation over there, and also it's going to affect over here where the price of the gas will go up. So you're going to have the barrels of oil where they're going to, they're going to limit the production of um, petroleum in Saudi Arabia. That's going to make it go up in hyperinflation. Then what Powell done doing with the, uh, you know, the Fed. So it, it's not looking good for the the Biden administration, especially when Ukraine army is suffering massive losses now in Ukraine. So it ain't going to look good for, for them November the 8th coming up. Yeah, that's my own comments for today. Great comments and great call, Drew. But I'll, I'll say that the Biden administration, what happens to Ukraine will not affect the Biden administration. Anyone who's you agree, Rod? Yeah, I think people already have kind of forgot about it here already. They, they, you know, you don't see as many flags and, and all that support. And on people's social media, they kind of, it's almost, you know, out of sight, out of mind. So the media is not reporting on it that much. So people kind of forgot about it. And uh, not to criticize the call, but you said things are starting to turn around for Russia. Things were never not turned around. Russia is winning in Ukraine, and it's always been winning. and. The Kherson offensive was the first offensive that Ukraine has done, the Zelensky regime or the push regime, whoever's in charge, Poroshenko or Zelensky. It's the first military action that's been successful for Ukraine in about seven years. They've been spectacularly failing. So they get one that's not turning anything around. Also, they gained ground in an area that Russia was clearly leaving. Russia was leaving that area. And then they attacked as Russia was leaving. So Russia 
chose to withdraw from that area. And then, do you see what I'm saying, Rod? Yeah, Lee, uh, Russia's winning the war, and they lost one battle. And they're, you know, the media, Ukraine, and all the Ukraine supporters are celebrating like, like it's over, like you know, like like they won the war. No, and and they uh, again. Uh, we're we're going to have Scott Ritter on tomorrow, right, Rod? Right. Hopefully, we have Scott Ritter on tomorrow, right? We're hoping to get Scott Ritter, and he'll go into detail on this. But in my opinion, when you defeat an enemy that is leaving an area, it's not like you won a battle. Exactly. Russia was not trying to hold on to that area for a variety of reasons. It did not exactly mesh with their original stated objective in Ukraine, denazifying, demilitarizing. And their goal has never been to occupy all of Ukraine. And we've had people like Mark Svoboda come on and say they may have to. And I think that's true. They may have to, but not now. And it's they've never said they're trying to occupy all of Ukraine. So a planned withdrawal. And the people who are saying this is a problem with pinning your hopes on lies for the U.S., everyone who thinks this is the big turning point and things are different and Ukraine is winning, give it a couple of weeks. See, Russia has already taken so much territory in Ukraine. People are saying, well, they took more land in uh, a few days than Russia took in months. Look at how much Russia controls 20% of Ukraine. And I think after the big Ukrainian victory, they controlled like 19% of Ukraine. And we'll get those exact numbers with Scott Ritter tomorrow. But don't buy into the propaganda. Don't be fooled for a second by it. Russia is still winning and it's still destined to win because Russia's got such an advantage in manpower and resources. And nothing's changed about that. Agreed, Ron? Yeah, for sure, Lee. Uh, you know, the one thing that I've been hearing from commentators is that, you know, Russia needs to deploy more troops. You know, they like they've like we've I've said from the very beginning, they're very strategic and precise. Uh, with how much manpower they've been using, but with all these NATO forces and these foreign mercenaries, I don't know if you've seen on Telegram, but there's uh, been some Americans celebrating over there and posting videos. On, yeah, and so, you know, you have all these mercenaries over there, so they have to, you know, just regroup, get some more manpower, and, um, you know, wipe these guys out. Yeah, and that's what I think they're going to do, and we're going to see that, but there is no point that suddenly Ukraine's ahead. There's been no point where that's happened. This is uh, so get realistic about that. Anyone who's uh, I'll tell you who was surprisingly unrealistic. Alexander McCourse from the Duran. And I like Alexander and I like the Duran. But he was calling it disastrous. Did you see that? Alexander called it a disastrous defeat. But then he said Russia lost almost no they had very low casualties. I don't consider that a disaster. Perhaps we have different definitions of disaster. And what he was saying basically was it was an optics disaster, a PR disaster. And the fact is the media is making a big deal of this, but the media is stupid and they've been stupid and wrong 
through the entire war. And them saying it's a big victory. This actually seems somewhat like what the Germans did at the end of World War II with the Battle of Bulge and stuff like that, where they launched offensives knowing that they were going to lose the war, but trying to improve their political position. And at the end, it didn't help, you know, Germany still lost. So any comments before I go into the calls, Rod? Because I know you've been following this, too. Yeah, I would agree with Alexander as far as PR-wise, not uh, military-wise or anything like that. But yeah, PR-wise, it somewhat is a disaster because I know a lot of people who are in support of special military operation wanted this to be done quicker. And, um, you know, so I, I agree you know, on PR-wise and, you know, to the, uh, the, the staunch Ukraine supporters, yeah, it, it, it is a little bit of a disaster. Well, I, I, I still don't like the word disaster because— it's maybe a setback, but what what's a disaster in this context? Disaster is a pretty serious word. If if you ask me, how's your night, Lee? And I said, well, we had a disaster. And you said, oh, really? Is everything okay? And I said, oh yeah, uh, you know, a dish fell over. You'd go, that's not a disaster. And I disagree. But great comments. Al Keller, call back. We didn't get to you. And we got Ed Martin coming up. Let's take a short break on Backstory. And on the radio at 105.5 FM, AM 1390 in Washington, D.C. And in my defense, uh, Rod, when we have guests, when we have the first guest is Ed and the second one is Ted and the command central, I, I, I hear it, Ed sound. You see why an old man gets baffled? <laughs> no, it's all good, Lee. It's all good. Right. So forgive me, Ed Mark. Accidentally called you Ted Rawl, which Ted's a great guy, but a commie. So you probably won't want to be called that. So joining us now, first time guest, Ed Martin from Philosophy's Eagle Forum. Hey, Ed, how are you doing? Hey, Lee, great to be with you. Thanks for all you do. I'm a fan of yours and uh, listened to you and read you for years. So it's good to be on with you and your listeners. Well, thanks very much. Nice to hear you to say. Welcome to the show. We're happy to have you as a first-time guest. So tell people who don't know about the Eagle Forum, because, you know, it's a venerable organization. It's been around for a long time. Tell people about Eagle Forum. So, well, our founder's name was Phyllis Schlafly, and Lee, you knew her well. And Phyllis Schlafly was sort of iconic figure in American political life. She was born in 1924, and she died in 2016. And during that long life, she had a very... Um, very committed uh, role. She found her way into politics uh, starting when she was about 22. She helped uh, a candidate for office and uh, and she was a campaign manager. So all the way through until Donald Trump, uh, she had, was an early endorser of Trump. And so Phyllis Schlafly started Eagle Forum. And we like to tell people we're 
our eagles, our team, are people who understand conservatism and uh, and policy, but we know politics. Uh, it's not enough to be sincere and correct. You want to succeed. And Phyllis had this great record uh, on issues that she believed in, anti-communism, uh, for military superiority, pro-life, of course, pro-family. Um, she fought back the big effort to amend the Constitution in the 70s, all the establishment on both sides of the aisle uh, wanted the ERA, and Phyllis uh, beat that back. And so she was extraordinary. And we continue her work today. We actually refer to ourselves, Lee, as Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. We She never named the place after her, but once she was deceased, we call ourselves Phyllis Schlafly Eagles as an organization. And we're out there at every level. I was uh, talking today with an Eagle uh, leader in Idaho who is uh, fighting the good fight up there where there's some lunatics doing crazy things. So uh, if you go to phyllisschlafly.com, people can find out more about all our work. Now, let's talk about some of the primaries that happened yesterday. The big one I noticed was in uh, New Hampshire with Trump-backed person Caroline won. What did you think of the primary season? What did we learn from the primaries all across the country about the strength of the the Trump-backed candidates? Yeah, I mean, look, uh, there's no doubt now. And again, I, I, you know, I was chairman of the Missouri Republican Party. I, I led a hostile takeover in 2012 and was able to become chairman. And then I served on the RNC for a couple of years. And, and I saw up close, um, you know, the, the, uh, the party structure and all. It's Donald Trump's party, right? The grassroots as well as the sort of uh, new, you know, general party is with him. The, the establishment still doesn't like him or trust him. And you saw that in the primaries. Uh, you know, I actually would point to the race up there um, in New Hampshire for U.S. Senate. Uh, there was a retired general named Bolduck. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name right, but he was a Trump-endorsed guy. And they ran a, a, uh, a clean fingernail uh, establishment person in the primary against him. And, and Bolduck looks like he hung on. So, I mean, look, what we know after what we know after the primary season this year is very similar to 2020, but it's been emphatically clear. Donald Trump's shift of the Republican Party away from a globalist party, away from a party that the neocons uh, knew and, and ran, and to an America First Party is complete. You can, you can every now and then buck that if you are a old-fashioned neocon or establishment candidate, but the Liz Cheney's of the world are out, and the America First candidates are in, and uh, what we need is the, is the House and Senate to live up to that in office, and that, that if they both win. Uh, and that will be a different challenge. But um, but in general, uh, the issues, America first issues, uh, Donald Trump has has solidified his hold on the Republican Party. And I just think it's a matter of w- being patient and waiting for a couple of these people. Mitch McConnell is not in office because his policies are popular. He's in office because he's Mitch McConnell. He's famous. And the fact is, Voters, all voters across the board tend to vote for incumbents. I think that's why Mr. McConnell's in there. But after a couple of cycles, he's getting older. He'll retire or he'll leave for health reasons or, you know, the, the other thing that can happen. And uh, I'm not wishing bad on anybody, but I'm saying people like Mitch McConnell, I think it's a matter of waiting for them and being patient. Do you agree with my take on that, Ed? I, I do in the sense, Lee, that um, people that want to change the, uh, the pol- politics overnight don't understand politics. And so, you know, you, you have to be willing to slog along. You know, 
One of the places I saw that the most, as you'll remember, Lee, well, when Ron Paul and the Paulies um, had that effort over a course of about a year and a half where they were getting involved at the grassroots level and changing the, the, the county committees and the regional committees, congressional committees, it was very effective. And, and, and my point was only that they had a patience about them. And so you're right. I, I think that that's right. The, the, the question we have is when the Republicans win the House, I think they will, and the Senate, they win a couple more governorships. How do you show that you are a different Republican Party? Because the American people are sick of all of it. They see all of it, and they're right. They, they see the Uniparty spending tens of billions of dollars in Ukraine on, on a war that we have no interest, no, no national security interest to be involved and no clarity on, right? And so the Uniparty is doing all that kind of stuff. The Uniparty is happy to manage the education system into destruction for our kids. What, so American people are sick of that. The question will be, what can the Republicans in power do to be different, right? And, and how will they shine a light on some of this corruption? Look, we've now seen, Lee, you, you, you talk about it. I mean, they've been on your program. I, I mean, we've now seen that the national security, the intelligence community structure has been used against we the people. That's clear now. It's the FBI was doing it with the, the FISA courts. We now have the Durham report. Durham is reporting some of the details. We know this has happened. What's going to happen now? In the past, Republicans would say, oh, well, we're for law and order, so therefore we, you know, we're going to get a better FBI director. No, we need to dramatically change the structure of our American government because it's abusing we the people. And if the Republicans don't do that, then they will pay a price in the next election and you won't see any real change. So that's the larger context of how do you see limit? I don't need somebody else to get in and run government better. I need people to get in and, and reduce the power of the federal government, change the dynamic towards we the people. And that's a big deal. And our, our you know, meaning conservatives need to demand it and Republicans better live up to it or they won't be reelected and they won't reelect a Republican in 2024. So you brought up the fact that the system is now politicized against Republicans. They're being arrested and harassed. How, how frightening are I don't I, I'm not using that word lightly. I think what, what is happening is actually frightening. And I think someone like Phyllis would would be shocked if she saw how things had changed in four years. Do you agree with me, Ed? No, I, I agree with you, Lee. I think the word frightening is the right word. I mean, if you're not if you're not frightened, you're not paying attention. I mean, um, all of the norm that we we used to see that were in place to hold you know, uh, to check and balance what's going on or out the window. You know, one of the reasons that there was always this 90-day buffer period before an election where they wouldn't do things like raid Mar-a-Lago and, uh, and, you know, FBI uh, surrounding Mike Lindell for his phone, all this kind of stuff. One of the reasons that was not done was you didn't have time to prove your innocence. You know, it's like the old Raymond Donovan, the, the labor secretary under Reagan, he famously said after he was acquitted, he said, well, which office do I go to to get my reputation back? I mean, we, we, when government and, and right now we're living in a world where the government, big government will act and social media, big media, big tech and big media, sorry, big tech and big media will work together to underscore big government's argument. And you'll never be able to unring that bell. So right now, most of America thinks something happened at Mar-a-Lago that they had to raid 
uh, you know, to, to stop. And, and so you, you, the, the real um, the fear we should have is that the, the, the people in power, the regime is targeting citizens in a way we've never seen before against norms that we used to see in place to stop it. And the last thing I'll say, Lee, is if you know a little bit of history and a little bit of law, when you have a president in the United States say that citizens are a clear and present danger, that's not a Tom Clancy book. That's not a Harrison Ford movie, although there are two, a book and a movie by the name Clear and Present Danger. It's a holding of the Supreme Court, which said you, if you are a clear and present danger, can have your constitutional rights diminished and taken away. At the time, it had to do with the First Amendment. But that's the use of the language. It's, it's not happening uh, accidentally. It's being done intentionally to signal if you are an election denier. That's another one. If you, I ran the election board, Lee, in St. Louis City in 2005 and six. I know up close how hard it is to run a good election. I know up close that there's voter fraud, registration fraud. What the government of this country is saying is if you deny that the elections are 100 percent great, you are a clear and present danger to democracy and you'll be targeted. So this is not a, a, an esoteric debate on what could come. This is what the government is saying to us right now. So, yes, I'm frightened and yes, I'm concerned. And yes, I'm wondering where it's going to end up. Uh, and I think the o- one of the only things that will stop it is more and more people un- recognizing the problem and acting on it, both election, you know, f- November ele- elections and also demanding accountability uh, from from their from their uh, elected officials. But uh, in the face of big media and big tech, Lee, I worry a lot about whether you can get your message out. Look at you. I mean, you're one of the more articulate guys in this space. And you have to fight like the Dickens to get your voice heard because they don't want your voice heard. Thank you for saying that, Ed. But would you agree with me? I think it's backfiring. And I think proof of that is the fact that Alex Jones has the number one book, the number one selling book in the country, even though the New York Times won't acknowledge it. No one has been more demonized than Alex Jones. They've gone over his business. They've attacked him mercilessly. And yet, he still has a large audience. I would say because he, people know that despite some mistakes he may, may, may make, he's telling the truth. The media is not. So do you think these moves by Biden, I've heard the uh, Rasmussen report said over 50 percent of people want Biden impeached. Do you think this is or am I being too optimistic? That a lot of the stuff is, is backfiring, Ed. Uh, no, no. Look, I think it is backfiring. I, I do think it is backfiring, um, uh, and I think that's an astute assessment, you know, Alex Jones. But I just would point out that the 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 people on the other side are not sitting around taking it lightly. Um, and they're not sitting around and saying, "Oh, well, we lost that argument. What are we going to do?" You know, we have an executive order uh, that Joe Biden signed that was designed, we're told, to secure the elections, but they won't tell us what that means. And the working group for that effort to secure the elections, the working group included the ACLU and all the left-wing groups. So, you know, you just say to yourself, okay, are they going to sit back? They got billions and billions, hundreds of billions of dollars transferred during COVID to prop up the unions, to, pro- to bail out the pension funds of, of, our sta- of the bad states, the, the wasteful states. And so are they going to sit back and say, well, we'll just give up power? 
So I, I, while I am with you, I think that more and more Americans know it's the wrong direction. There are two factors that I would just put out there that I, I, I think are, are, are the wild cards. One is they're clearly trying every day to use the power of big media and big tech to put a story out that damages the people that are uh, challenging the regime. And you can say, well, Mar-a-Lago didn't work. Uh, January 6th Select Committee didn't work. But they're clearly trying, right? And, and, you know, some high percentage of the American people believe that Russia and Donald Trump colluded in 2016, when what was proven after 18 months was that that was not true. In fact, it was Hillary Clinton colluding with foreigners. So, But my point is that the sophistication of the machine to tell people a lie and have it become part of what they know, that is, we've never seen anything like that, the power of that. The second thing is, I do think that in 2020, the model for tampering with the elections, which is to say use legal means, uh, get the laws changed so you can do ballot uh, mail-in ballots, get the drop box and all, coupled with the tradition of voter fraud, which exists for both parties through all time, no one denies it, leads me to say, okay, what happens? Because it's harder to steal, you know, 435 congressional districts, I understand, except there's really only 30 or 40 that are in play. The others are gerrymandered in such a way that they're safe. And there's really only three or four Senate seats. So you're talking about three or four states. So you're talking about three or four jurisdictions that happen to be Arizona, happen to be Pennsylvania. And you're talking about Montgomery County, Pennsylvania. And you're talking about Maricopa County, Arizona. I, I look. I, so the wild cards are the power of the media and big tech, and the and and the and the wild cards. The second one is voter fraud and and fixing the elections. I don't know what we have on that. And you know, when the message is that if you're an election denier, you're a clear and present danger and a threat to democracy. That's gonna. So that's a, certainly a way to cool people's uh, desire to challenge the elections. And you say, I just don't want that headache and heartache, and you back off. So. I, I, it feels, Lee, I feel what you feel, that it's backfiring, but I wonder about whether it will be allowed to have the regular impact of a backfire that it would absent the massive control of big tech, big media, and the prospect of voter fraud. And I agree with the point you're making. This is not a time to not be vigilant. This is time to be vigilant and brave. And everybody individually can be brave merely by saying your opinion, if it's true and goes against the narrative. Do you think it is a time for citizens to step up and be brave by by fighting against the narrative and speaking out? Ed? Yeah, no, I certainly do. I'm sorry I was talking over you. I certainly think it's a time. I Look, I don't mean to sound down. I mean to sound, I want to energize people that this is a time to be vigilant. This is a time to be creative. This is a time to figure things out and communicate with your friends and family and, and be smart about what's going on. I, look, there's, a, there's no doubt in some ways it's a wonderful time because there's so, much, so many challenges happening. And you look, the late Phyllis Schlafly, for whom I work so closely with, she would say, you know, we still live in a country where the impact can be made at the ballot box. And we, can't, we should not give up on that. We shouldn't get disheartened. And, you know, you see it, by the way, in the local races which are really exciting, right? When you roll a school board and you flip it, when you flip a county executive and when you get a new mayor in places, you have a real opportunity to change your life and so uh, and the life of your community. So I do think that people need to be energized. They need to lead. They need to also support the voices, you know, yours, but also the voices of elected officials who are strong in this space. 
uh, and clear about it. And then ultimately, you cannot be bitter and angry and persuade anybody. It's very difficult to do. You can, you know, Biden is so bitter and so hateful, but his fear is what is he's trying to make us afraid. But we can't fall for that. Phyllis never did. We have to be our country is glorious. Our nation is glorious. And we just we got to get back to basics and push, push, push. But we can do it. And we have a great Constitution. People that want to throw the Constitution out and, and write a new one or have a convention. That's just crazy. And to me, that's crazy. Uh, we just need to get focused on, you know, making getting good people in and holding them accountable and being energized. And it's um, there's a lot to do, but it's a challenge. It's not I'm not lie, I'm not going to lie to people who are looking at it and saying, hey, I just happen to have my head up and I'm getting my head taken off by a subpoena. You know, I said to somebody, um, Lee, you'll appreciate the difference. A subpoena from Congress, especially this Congress, is like a kangaroo court saying, come and talk to us. You can ignore them with some, you, you know how to do it. And the, and, the, and, the, and the threat is fairly limited unless you're Bannon or Navarro. But when these people get grand jury subpoenas from federal courts, this is a different bird, right. different category. And you've got to get, go get a lawyer and you're going to spend $5,000 to make sure you handle it no matter what it is. And that's hard for normal people. And that chilling effect is intentional. Well, and have you, have you ever been subpoenaed by Congress? I have. Yeah, I have. Okay, so I was subpoenaed by Congress a few years ago, and I didn't know that they send you by email. And so when they sent me a subpoena, it went in a spam folder, and I didn't see it. I didn't find out I'd been subpoenaed until after the, the midterms in 2018. And then I, I saw in the paper, this guy didn't show up, and I'm like, what? And I checked my spam, sure enough. So I agree. I, I didn't ignore subpoena, but effectively, I didn't respond to it at all because I didn't know about it. Were you surprised at the, I thought a, a subpoena, someone's going to show up and knock on your door. That makes sense to me, a delivery person. Yeah, well, I don't think, I, 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 my little that I know about the congressional subpoenas is that they do have to do that. They have to do that if they want compliance. But as you point out, it's a different, it's a totally different category. Uh, it's a totally different experience. And, uh, and again, my my uh, my um, my uh, my reason to mention that is the expansion into look. It, there's a book Molly Hemingway wrote called Rigged, and she's talking about in there about Mark Elias, a Democrat attorney, who basically said, "I don't have to win these cases. I just got to file lawsuits all over the place and make them right. run in circles, and I'll get an impact." Lawfare is what we're seeing writ large. And so if you're a kid who works for Save America PAC and you get a federal grand jury subpoena, you're getting a lawyer, you're paying $5,000 at least, and you got to do something to answer that. And all of that, your, your wife or husband is nervous. You're, you know, you don't have savings because you're not a big hitter. You're a staffer. And so all of this right. uh, cascading effect of lawfare against uh, we the people is, I, I, I look, it's always happened, uh, you know, whether it was Lois Lerner in the IRS or, you know, probably the Democrats can list 100, you know, versions of, uh, of something uh, that Karl Rove was doing. I don't know. But my point is, it's always existed. It's never been this systemic and ongoing and broad and happening the way it's happening. And uh, with the, in the context of a president of the United States calling you and me, or at least me, a clear and present danger uh, for my stated public positions in lots of ways. Now, now, Ed, do you agree with me that a lot of 
and this is the media is not going to tell you this because it's completely against the narrative. But I think the most exciting candidates and uh, elected leaders in the states are women. A lot of them are women. Look, look at Latina women in Texas. Look at Caroline, uh, Caroline uh, Levitt in New Hampshire. Look at Lauren Boebert. Look at Marjorie Taylor Greene. You, you with, with an organization that was run by women, and the Democrats like to pretend they're the party of women, but they don't even know what a woman is. But are you, are you saying what I'm saying with lots of exciting candidates who are clearly on the right? Yeah, I think that's right. I think, look, I think that um, the, the, the uh, I agree with you, um, especially like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert, who have had the uh, willingness to be out there. They're kind of you get a you get a woman in office who's fearless, and it's really something to behold. Now, there are plenty of establishment women that get sort of fooled into uh, that are conservative. You know, I, I get disappointed in Joni Ernst, who gets trotted out as a, you know, a conservative woman. Yes. I feel like she's playing the, the, the establishment game a lot of times. But I, I do agree with you. Look, I think Christine Nome, she had a couple of missteps, but in general, she's been pretty fearless, you know. And I so, uh, look, I, I was texting while we're on the phone. I'm texting with uh, – African-American congressman named Byron Donald, who's from uh, Naples, Florida. He's an old friend of mine. His wife was the one who went on the school board eight years ago and was fighting on the school board. He ran for Congress and won. He's an up-and-coming guy. I, look, the, the, the time for ceding to the Democrats any of, the, uh, of their ability to speak to certain categories, that's over. If you're, if you're a black American, and, you know, Donald Trump had it right, you look up and say, and he, what the hell have they done for you? You know, how could you do worse? The system, the only systemic racism I see in this country is the school teachers unions and our inner city schools. They, they keep down black and brown kids like it, like it was designed by the, 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 the uh, you know, Democrats in the South in 1880. So I, if you uh, if you look around, there's more and more comfort. Hispanic Americans also. We got lots of conservatives who are running. I, I agree with you. I see that, too, Lee. Again. What we have to wonder and worry and push is when they get in office, sometimes they're able to isolate the folks we're talking about. Uh, you know, one of the problems in the House of Representatives, you will know and your listeners probably know, but you really have one vote in the House. And after that, once you've elected a speaker, the speaker is the king of the world in the House. And you can you can fight against yeah. it. You really can never win. So, you know, learning how to be a, an effective uh, voice is not just and uh, not be uh, not be um, uh, marginalized. Is not just a, 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 a it's not just a simple challenge. It's a ongoing. And again, one of the things individuals like me and you and and, and listeners can do is lift these voices up because the more MTG is known as someone who's popular, the more they got to listen to her. And then we got to help her be smart about how she leverages her impact. And you agree that a lot of power to house comes from committee assignments, and that's part of why I say. You need to be patient. Things take years to happen because getting good committee assignments and getting seniority on a committee means getting elected multiple times. How important do you think the committee assignments are for a House member? Well, very important, but I would go even further. and I agree with you completely. I mean, um, in the House of Representatives, U.S. House, we need less people that are doing oversight grandstanding on a committee, say, and they're actually doing things that are constitutionally powerful. 
So the guy who's in charge or the gal of appropriation is the one who can hold the wallet of these departments hostage and say, I want to know this or I want you to do this or we're not going to approve your budget. So you're exactly right. And then, again, there are some really good guys that, and gals that have come up through the ranks. You can end up a chair of a committee in your second or third or fourth term. So you it's not like you have to be there 38 years. I mean, sometimes that's true, uh, but there's plenty of room to succeed that way. And I think that, uh, well, again, we're going to see some young uh, or some new faces and we've got to encourage them and then support them when they take on these challenges, because what you know will happen is they will start to, the media will start to, uh, to dig into them and try to marginalize them. And then we've got to be willing to kind of uh, push back, but you're, you're right on track, Lee, that, so those chairs are important, and knowing how to play that game is is uh, critical. And I think the ability to call witnesses, too, because if they call witnesses, and people may be negative about say, well, it won't make any difference. You're wrong. With sites like Gateway Pundit and Daily Caller and Breitbart out there, if a congressperson calls a witness and they say things under oath on the stand— it will get picked up by some media. You agree with me? Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. I look. We just got to have our guys be courage, have enough courage to do it. You know, and 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 you're exactly right. You can you can force these guys to testimony and ask them questions and hold them accountable. And we have to be willing to do it. Yeah, hundred percent. And and I, what I want to see is more, not less. I I want to see a flood the zone of these kinds of things. And don't worry about where or how it's covered. Get it on record, right? And then let's see. We'll come back around to it over time, and we'll find the right people to do it. Well, Ed, Ed Martin, great first appearance on The Backstory, and I hope it won't be the last. I'd like to invite you back anytime you want. It was a pleasure talking to you, and thanks for the kind words about me. Let's take a short break here on The Backstory, and when we come back, more stuff with our producer, Rod. Backstory, the show that brings you the truth behind the headlines. This is the Backstory. What a great appearance by Ed Martin. Thanks, Rod, for booking him. He's a great guest. Although, you know one, one thing I like about Ed? He's very high energy, good energy in Ed. Did you think that, Rod? Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that, Lee. The great guest as well, for our first time on the backstory. Yeah, great job booking him. Uh, as you do a great job here every day, and uh, we appreciate the work. So we enjoy talking to Ed Martin, and hopefully we'll have him back on. And I like the fact that he's also realistic about because he's worked in politics, and I do think people should. I don't want to. I said something about. A guy like Mitch McConnell is kind of entrenched. That's not a negative statement. I'm not discouraging someone from running against Mitch McConnell. But if you run against him, you have to figure out how to beat him. You have to figure out his advantage. And his advantage is extremely high name recognition. Does that make sense, Rock? Yeah, 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 for sure. And a great balance show today. Just coming up this hour is a great artist, cartoonist, and Bobby Vaughn 
Ted Brawl, joining us this hour. And taking your calls, 202-521-1320. And let's ask all killers to please call back. We, we didn't have time to get this call, but he knows we love him. So if you want to be part of the caller family here on the backstory, it's 202-521-1320. And Rod, what's the name of the show? You're listening to the best show on the radio, The Backstory. And one thing that struck me, talking to Ed, too, is that the Republican Party really has changed. Now, again, change, you don't see change 100% overnight. Does that make sense? It's like anything, like diet or working out. If you lift weights one day on a Monday, and you lift your weight, and then you look at yourself in the mirror Tuesday, and you go, the weights didn't work. Is that an effective workout strategy, Rod? No. No, if you're trying to lose weight or gain muscle or you know uh, change your exercise habits, it's going to take time and consistency. And you can't uh, let the physical, you know, hey, I don't look the way I want to. You got to, you know, you got to see the end road, the end goal. That's right. And you have, you, you have to ignore the, the, the middle time when things are bad. And I somewhat noticed with my recovery from the stroke. Uh, it's been, as someone who, who's recovering from a stroke, the psychological part of it, it's very hard. It's very hard because I keep wanting to be back to normal, and I'm still not. But I've not given up because all I'm looking for is improvement. And some days you go forward, and some days you go back. But when my mouth doesn't work in the show, you notice a lot of times I'll immediately say the word over again. And it's embarrassing, and it's very difficult. But it's psychologically very difficult. But you can't let setbacks worry you. And that's why I say in Ukraine, Russia is not losing. They may have had small setbacks, but that's all they've suffered that I've seen so far militarily. And economically, Russia is winning. Is is there any way you can see, Rod, on the economic front, the attempts to destroy Russia's economy failed utterly? Would you agree with me? Oh, for sure, Lee. Uh, Gazprom's, uh, you know, they've. I think they've uh, rose like forty percent as far as uh, supplying to other nations who haven't sanctioned them. So they're, so they're, so they're making a lot of money on people who haven't sanctioned them, like Europe, and they're going to heat those homes, and while Europe's going to be freezing. And have you seen some of these protests in Italy, in Czechoslovakia, in Germany? Would you have thought six months ago that you would see people, protesters out? waving Russian flags. Literally, remember, at the beginning of this operation, it seemed like the world, which is the Western world, hated Russia. And they were smashing the windows of Russian-owned businesses. Would you have thought, you've seen the people out there waving Russian flags. Would you have thought you'd see that while this military action was going on, Rod? 
Uh, honestly, Lee, I thought eventually they would people would come around, and, and it's come off a little bit faster than I thought. At the same time, that I thought it would take a little longer. I know that's contradicting, but uh, yeah, no, I, I think uh, it's exciting to see that people are you know waking up to this. You know, I saw a lot of farmers lined up in Italy because they're going to have to slaughter a whole bunch of cow, uh, cattle uh, because of the uh, economic policies over there and the the, the war on nitrogen. And things like that. So uh, it is it is exciting to see this, and um, you know, people people are definitely uh, opening their eyes to what's really going on, and that the the establishment is their enemy. And I would say the enemy. This 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 contradicts the narrative. And I'll say about this later. I think the battle, you know, the show that precedes us by any means necessary. Every day they say there's a worldwide struggle against capitalism, right? Is that fair to say, Rod? I'm not trying to mischaracterize them, but every correct, day correct. they say the struggle is against capitalism. I think the struggle is against chronic capitalism. Every day I'm seeing people rise up against the World Economic Forum, and the World Economic Forum is not capitalism. People like you and I who like capitalism, we don't think that's a shining. Do you think that Klaus Schwab is a shining example of capitalism? No, he wants dictatorships around the around the world. He, he wants to uh, he wants to, in a sense, be your father and tell you what to eat, what to say, and uh, what to, what kind of car to drive, and things like that. And I'm seeing worldwide revolutions against that, aren't you? By the way, that that's why I think Alex Jones's book is the number one seller in America, because not only is Alex Jones, but he picked a topic that is on fire around the world. The World Economic Forum and these crony capitalist unelected organizations are the threat now. Do you agree, Rod? For sure, Lee. Uh, you know, I adhere to God the Father and my parents. I don't need Klaus Schwab to tell me what to eat. Uh, you need to eat bugs. You need an electric vehicle. Uh, no freedom of speech and all all this other crap that these people say. These, you know, like I said, these people want to be your parents and they want to they want to baby you but in at the same time they also want to if you don't respect their uh their full authority they also want to kill you at the same time yes and i think this administration represents exactly what the world economic forum wants and that that is a, it's a worldwide revolution against global leftist liberalism and again leftist leftish it's not pure communism. It's liberalism viewed from the left because they like look at the agenda, the 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 WF's green agenda and so on. But let's get to the calls. Two oh two five two one thirteen twenty. Our good friend Brave is on the phone. Hey Brave, how you doing? Hey, good afternoon, guys. Hey, leave progress, not perfection, man. You keep working on it, you'll get there definitely, man, because it's definitely been improvement since you uh, first came back to now, right? Um, I was calling to um, to chime in on your conversation with Ed Martin. He's, he's always on point. But if you, if you don't mind, I would like to very quickly um, touch on what you were just discussing with the World Economic Forum and um, the idea of capitalism, crony capitalism, and, uh, and, and leftist communism, right? Um, I think that the, the issue, the issue, I think where the divide comes in is that, like you, you, you are referenced uh, by any means necessary, um, and I, I disagree with them sometimes. I may agree with them sometimes, but the argument that's made, um, the, the idea is that I think one would have to understand that 
the, the perception of what capitalism is, is um, where the real divide comes in at. Because I often hear conservatives say, um, you know, or Republicans say that um, uh, it's not capitalism that we're doing, we're dealing with crony capitalism. Well, the, the argument that you'll get from most people who I would identify with, right, most, is that all we've been dealing with is crony capitalism and the actual capitalism that you would have examples of. Our government sold those people, sold those uh, forms of capitalism out a long time ago, which is why you obviously see small businesses gone, because on a smaller level, I think, I think you have a, a better opportunity to see a truer example of what capitalism in theory is supposed to be versus um, what we actually see on the national front when it comes to all these big conglomerates and what we have come to understand capitalism to be, which is, again, sometimes most mostly referred to by uh, conservatives as crony capitalism. That's just my, my idea. That's just my perception of that. Um, but what I wanted to get to uh, concerning Ed, Ed Martin and the point he was making about um, the elections, I, I have to wonder. I was, I was watching. I went back and I watched that uh, Kamala Harris interview again. And it's been coming more and more coming around to, I think they're going to run her. And I could be wrong, right? No one has to agree with me. I think they're going to run her. And I don't think they care if if she's uh, acceptable, likable, or has a chance of winning, because I think they've already shown that they, they will steal an election. Like, they've already manipulated elections for as long as I can remember. And these, these last this last election and, and, and how they did Trump prior to that, they just totally, like, they didn't care what the reality was, in my opinion. They just totally ran roughshod, whether it was the... Um, the Russia collusion crap, or going back and saying, or going back and now trying to say that if you question the election, you're basically uh, um, a domestic terrorist. I don't think they care what public uh, what public perception is. I think that um, they're willing to do whatever they do because, in the end, whether the truth comes out or not, the the public is not keeping up with it. There are still companies forcing their employees to take the jab or get fired. No, I agree. With, I agree with your point there completely. I pointed out. She's very unlikable, but they don't care because Biden's actually pretty un- unlikable. Would you agree with that? Exactly. I mean, exactly. And, and that's perfect. This is last election is a perfect example. Who voted? I mean, yeah, I know a lot of people was, was tripping on Trump and all that. A lot of people came out. But come on, really? Nobody, Biden, nobody, nobody was excited about Biden. And then you get a vice president who no, who didn't even make it through the, uh, the early stages of the, of the Democratic primary. Like, how do we end up with that if not by, by stolen election? I just think that Trump did a horrible job of making his case. Obviously, when there are so you you had combo couch members on, there there have been so many um, better examples made of what the real issue is with our elections and how they are defrauded. But if, I just don't see anyone in positions of power willing to, other than Tulsi Gabbard, maybe willing to make those arguments. And so I just, I, at the end of the day, I don't think they, because again. Great reset, Klaus Schwab. The great narrative is the next stage. They don't care what we think, don't think, do like, or whatever. They don't care. And if we and if we can get, I think the only way it matters is if enough people in America were to rise up. And I just don't see that happening. And unfortunately, and I don't know if I'm rambling on for a minute, so I shut up. But unfortunately, when you do have a, a, a side that's a, a group of Americans who are willing to stand up and fight, right? If it was even valid, like say January, 6th, if it was even valid. Um, it's it, it, it then turned around into domestic terrorism, which they're making the stages to, of course, label anyone who's in opposition to the uh, establishment or elite rule. I think that um, I think Brandon's speech is perfect. We're we've got some dark times ahead of us, man. Yeah, thanks very much for the call, Brave. Great call as usual. 
and we got to move on only for time reasons. But call any time, you know that. 202-521-3020. Joshua in the Bay Area. Hey, Joshua, let me ask, are you homeless? Hello? Hello, Joshua. You're in the Bay Area. Do you, do you actually live in a house or outdoors in a tent? I live in a house that's actually a, that's been converted into a duplex, actually in my one of my old neighborhood growing up. Um, two points I wanted to make really quickly. Uh, one, I can see Nancy Pelosi's district from here, and it looks like it's going to be on fire soon. Second is um, uh, your guest had, uh, had made a comment about how black Americans should wake up. I do truly believe that if more black Americans read Thomas Sowell and had a, a good uh, a breadth of history, we wouldn't be in this situation, but that's besides the point. Sorry for the noise. I'm currently working at Tesla. Um, oh, are you? Yeah. Um, I, 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 and I'm, I wanted to talk about how I'm, I'm also in also in school, and there's a whole... Well, let me ask you a serious question. I was joking about the homeless thing. I recently saw some footage of the homeless situation in Oakland across the bay, and I had not really seen the footage. It, it is like something out of Mad Max. Be on Thunderdome is frightening. So if you're able to afford a place in the Bay Area, I salute you. But let me ask you a serious question. At the Detroit Auto Show today, Joe Biden said he's going to build a network, nationwide network of charging stations. As a person who works at Tesla, do you want Joe Biden involved in that process of building charging stations? Because I don't believe, remember president announcing gas stations, I think they developed with the market. What do you think, Joshua? First thing I would say to that is um, fix the crappy roads in Oakland so I can get to said charging stations without, you know, right. my tire on the way there. Um, second, um, to that point, I don't think the government uh, started or is maintaining Tesla. They do have a, a nice contract uh, with SpaceX, but I, I, I don't, as big as they are and as, as as lopsided as a, a golem they are, they're not going to be able to pull that off. Also, to your point, in um, Oakland, California, we have some very resourceful homeless people. Uh, I'll give you a good example. There's a person that lives down the street in a makeshift house. Now, when I say a makeshift house, the man put it together via scrap and everything like that. Even Jimmy rigged it up to our power source where he has a, a camera, uh, security camera system to it. Now, here's the kicker. He flies a giant Mexican flag on top of it. I mean, like, to the point where you're on the trains and everything like that, you can see it. It's just, it's bonkers to me that the fact that, like, okay, you're doing all this, but you're flying. Why why don't you just try that in Mexico City and see how well it works for you? Um, a lot of our homeless are very... Or moved to Mexico City. They've, they've moved back to our... There's a reason you're in the U.S. Yeah, yeah, go ahead, Joshua. On top of that, we, we have homeless uh, encampment fires all the time from people who to uh, hook up power but don't have an alternator, so they end up blowing up the whole thing. Um, I I do want to start calling you guys more often just to give you a nice take on what goes on in my city from day to day, because um, I... Please do. What goes on... Oh, I most definitely. Um, I'm, more, I'm more inspired by Jason Goodman and his uh, friend Jason Ortel than they walk around New York City. I'll, I'll start doing that so everybody can see the difference between what goes on in Oakland and what goes on in San Francisco. Seeing as Nancy Pelosi can't seem to come and you know help her district out at all, but she can go to Taiwan to tweet, whatever. Um, uh, to your um, to your last uh, um, your last person's point, um, I'm the son of an immigrant. 
mom's from the Caribbean. Um, I grew up in a capitalist home. We, we had a small, we had two small businesses. They put my sister and I both through college. Um, I'm about to have a little one and I'm starting something small. I'm not going to be working for Tesla for the rest of my life. Um, but the fact that uh, the show that I will not name that comes on before yours, I've had arguments with them. Like, you guys bang the soapbox each and every day, but I never see you come up with any type of business, organization, or anything that will ever match what you guys keep all the time. And they're, they're pretty much a dead-end show to me, in my opinion. But um, I don't want to keep any, I don't want to keep you on the phone too long. With, um, with, with No, and I personally don't want to criticize the show. And I don't want to misrepresent their point, but I'm saying this is, I think, the point that they make every day. So it's not criticism, but you're free to criticize anyone you want to, including me. So 202-521, great call, Joshua. Call anytime, 202-521-1320, the killer of owls, owl killer. You're on the phone. Thanks for calling back, buddy. Hey. Braves right, they don't care. That's what the whole election was. It's all they have to do is say something and they just act on it. They don't care about the, the public perception of it. Cars are evil. Get we're gonna get rid of gas. We're gonna get rid of coal. We're gonna Europe, we're gonna shut down our nuclear uh reactors. They don't care what the public thinks. They clearly don't. And what COVID was, it was their way of seeing what people would put up with. And they they went so far, and you saw it with the cities, with the mayors, and then some, some leftist governors. You saw how they took that power and they ran with it. You know, whose book was the number one selling book uh, last week in the whole country? Alex Jones. Who didn't put them on there? Who didn't recognize the book? It was the New York Times. And the book was the, the Great Reset and the uh, Fight for Humanity. And you know who's the first person to say Great Reset even before Klaus Schwab? Klaus Schwab's book came out in uh, July. It was King Charles, when he was Prince Charles, talking about how we were, it was going to be a, they were going to need wartime budgets, not in the billions, but in the trillions. And because other countries were so debt leveraged that they had to come in and, uh, they, they would need it. By the way, Al Keller, I, I think technically he's still Prince Charles. I don't believe he's been coronated yet. Does that sound right? No. He's not King Charles until they coronate him. I think. He, he, he certainly, he's certainly acting like the king. I'm sure they have to have some uh, uh, ceremony so he can get all dressed up in his uh, king drag and w- walk out and pretend, pretend like he was in the military. You know, something... Yes. You know, did you see uh, what Medev said the other day about Revelation uh, 9-8? No. Who said it? Medev, uh, the, the former president of Russia, uh, Medev. No, I did not. These, these crazy people that are playing with this, this whole war situation over there and cheering it on, that's where one-third of the population is burned up in a war, okay? Th- that is how serious... And then you, you heard the new prime minister of England talking about how she would push the button on nukes. That That is where we have gone with this craziness. And like Brave said, you have a vice, a vice president that couldn't even get 1% of the vote. Everybody knows that... Have, 
how how they got this guy in office, you know that that's debatable. But it, clearly, there was something something was not on the level with that. No, I've got I've got to say, Brave. Let me let me go back to something you said. Uh, Alex Jones's book. I think the New York Times actually helped Alex by refusing to acknowledge that he had the best-selling book in the country. It exactly fits with what Alex Jones and people like him and people like me think about the New York Times. It proves our point. And I think when normal people hear that, they they get it. I, I think the New York Times, what they do backfires. Do you agree? No, I, I do. I do think it backfires. But that just shows you that the public is at least receptive to these other points of view, and they don't care, and they keep marching forward with it. And that's where we're at. It's that the the crime is, the cover-up is bigger than the crime in itself. Same thing with the Russiagate. Same, th- same thing with what's, you know, do you know why he's in office? Why Biden's in office? Because they needed to cut the, they needed to, a reason for the energy being cut off to Europe to, to bring in the Great Reset. And, and the only way to do that was to have a war with Russia. And he was the man. They were going to do it in 2016, but Hillary lost. Okay? He, he is, he's the made man that if, he go, if everybody else goes down, he goes down. If he goes down, everybody else goes down. That's why he had to be installed in. Well, I think I think the, the the thing is, I'll defend the general public. Things have not gotten so bad. In fact, on a day to day basis for people, theoretically things are bad, but it's abstract for people. But oh, it, gas has not hit ten bucks a gallon, and it actually went back in price. And I think it's temporary. But what's it going to take for people to get up and take action? And specifically, the working people. I think their danger is with truckers and farmers. And once they do stuff that really starts affecting those people on a massive basis, and they're getting close, they're getting close. But I don't think anything has happened that's so bad that people are willing to get out of their couch and get in the streets. Working people. What do you think, Al Keller? No, for sure. I, and that, that honestly, the only way anything will change is when the, and it has to be done peacefully. It cannot be done. These stupid people on both sides saying, oh, you know, this guy's shooting his mouth off about an F-15. Like, and the other people, oh, yeah, we're, we have our guns in case the government comes. That is, that is what the globalists want. They want a Nadan situation. So they can let everybody get into, you know, you can have a, you can have a, uh, a barroom brawl and they'll just come in and pick, pick up the pieces. Th- that is the wrong answer. You're right. The, when the people with the farmers, the people, uh, the farmers, you know, the people, the people that actually do things, you know, the people that work in factories, the manufacturers, you know, people in the city that deserve a good, you know, pe- like people down in, uh, Jackson, Mississippi and people in, uh, Flint, Michigan that deserve a quality of life, and they have been failed for 100 years. When everybody comes together peacefully, the same way the Berlin Wall fell, and the police are like, oh, wait, we don't have to enforce these stupid rules, and the military are like, oh, we don't, you know, you're on our side, too. That is when things will change, because, it, but it, 
And, and what do you think of this idea? I meant to ask Ed this, but I forgot. We it's such a great conversation. Didn't have time. I think the Republicans need to find someone to launch a counter Soros trying to get law and order DAs. I'm saying no one do that. There's no organized effort by Republicans to get law and order DAs across the country. You see what I'm saying? Do you think that would be a good move? Yeah, I, I definitely. I, I, that, I have been saying that since, since, I, since Soros like, came to my attention like 13 years ago. I'm thinking, where the, the people on the right wing have billions of dollars, too. What's going on? They, they'll sit on their money. They'll squeeze, they'll squeeze a, a quarter until the eagle bleeds. They, it, that's, the, that's their mentality. And they, they think, if, you know, as long as they fly over the country the same way the left does. You know, the Mercers and people like that and, you know, the, the Murdochs and the Adelsons. And, you know, they even Trump's crowd to, to uh, not Trump himself. But it, the- no, but I agree. No, even Mike Lindell, if he would put his energy and money into trying to get law and order district attorneys elected across the country, don't focus on the presidency, but focus on the DA races. Soros' strategy worked, and it had a real effect on people's lives. Al Killer, we got to go. We got Ted Raw online. Let's take a short break, and we'll talk to our friend Bobby Vaughn, Ted Raw, and the backstory. Radio in the capital of the Empire of Lies, Washington, D.C., 105.5 FM and AM 1390. Joined now by author, artist, and Bobby Wall, Ted Rawl. Hey, Ted, how you doing? I'm okay, Lee. How are you doing? I'm good. You enjoy being called a Bobby Wall, correct? Uh, you know, if I had an issue with it, I would totally let you know. I think it's hilarious, and I love it. Yeah, it's great. Uh, I had a, um, I you know, it's like one of the things I don't like is like like nicknames. Like for example, when people have said like, "Hey, Teddy," and I'm like, you know, I'm not a Teddy, and I don't want to be called Teddy. And you should ask someone if they want to be called Teddy. But Bon Vivant, I will take any and any time. Yeah, and what does it mean to you? What does Bon Vivant mean to you? Well, um, a bon vivant is in is you know obviously in the French cultural sense is someone who uh, has the proper priorities in life, someone who uh, understands that in the end it all comes down to a hole in the ground, as the Dave Edmonds song says, and that uh, you know while we're here we have to have a good time, uh, you know drink good wine, eat good food, go on good trips, make good friends, be a good person. Uh, and not take a stupid thing seriously. And it seems to me that as a resident of Manhattan who likes to take advantage of being in Manhattan, that fits you. That's why I use it. Well, I I think it's, you know, I mean, it's a little hard 
I'm not, I'm a little old, um, you know, I'm not Eric Adams, so I'm not like a club scene guy. Um, You're not so, hitting Fashion Week. No, I'm not hitting, I never was that kind of dude. Uh, you know, I've, I've brushed up against it. Uh, when I was very young, I used to go to Studio 54 and Danceteria and the Mud Club and the Peppermint Lounge and also, and, you know, Area and all these cool places. Um, but, you know, it's, it's still New York. Ever? Many, many times, many times, CBGBs. Although, you know, the the secret about CBGBs is it's a legend, but most of the time the bands were terrible and, and, and really it was kind of a miserable place to see a show. It had great acoustics though. A dive. Everything, everything. Yeah. It was a dump. And, uh, you, I think you could get an STI just from going to the bathroom. Now I've never asked you this, but I'll bet you've been there. You've been to the Angelica, right? Yeah, many times. It's the movie theater on Houston Street. Yep. Mm-hmm. Right. And not surprised at all. So the, the Angelica is, a, fair, fair to say, art house? Absolutely. It's uh, one of the premier art house theater. I, I would say it's probably the most, it's the biggest, because I think it plays at least four. Uh, it has at least four theaters. It might have six, but it's uh, it, it has a lot of theaters. Um, most art houses in New York have one or two at most, like Film Forum. Uh, there was there was a place called Lincoln Plaza that had four, but it's closed. Uh, the pandemic killed it. So there, you know, Angelica is really I like say, the place. As a former resident of Austin, Texas, I must defend the Alamo Draft House. The Alamo Draft House is a chain of theaters in Texas, and it was very popular with the Austin Quentin Tarantino's films often premiered there. You know, you know about. The Alamo Draft House, right? Absolutely. Um, there was, there was a, there is an Alamo Draft House in Brooklyn that I have been to, and really? uh, there's, um, uh, and there's also, hipster. and there's one in, uh, in, in not so hipstery at all, in Yonkers of all places. Um, but oh, yeah. yeah, they're great. It's like you know, for a New Yorker, you know, the the theaters experience. You know, to have the ability to order a beer and a burger to your seat is an amazing thing. Um, you know, I think yeah. in the burbs there's more space, and so it's easier to have these. But but in New York, it's hard. I used to be a teaching assistant in Yonkers, by the way. Oh, really? True story. Roosevelt High School in Yonkers. I was an assistant, uh, a, a math tutor at Yonkers, at, at Roosevelt. So I will affirm that is not a hipster place. That's funny. We I, I, in college, I was a I was a math tutor uh, in Riverdale, which is just on the other sure. side, which borders Yonkers. Uh, so that's kind of that's funny. funny. That's funny. So, uh, by the way, it was somewhat intimidating in Roosevelt because every year they had people who did straight eights on the SATs. So they had some people who were much smarter than me and students. But some people were not. So it was a kind of mixed bag. Defending. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, my experience with uh, at least tutoring at that level, and I was a TA at, in college, too, is that, you know, it's not it's not an intelligence problem. It's a, sort of a background education problem. Um, you know, that basically, they, you know, people didn't get a good sound math education, usually uh, in in elementary school or middle school, and then it just carries on, and somehow the person got into college, but you know they don't have the background that they really need to do the work. It's not that they're stupid; they're just you know they just didn't get taught right. No, in- indeed, 
Indeed. Now, Ted, I want to talk to you because we were having a discussion earlier, and something I talk about frequently, because I often hear people on the left deny that there's any left. And I think them doing that ignores reality. Here's what I mean. Let's take an issue like gay rights. I would say gay rights at one point was clearly an issue only the left cared about. And at that point was Democrats. Democrats in the 70s and 80s, Democrats and libertarians were the only people talking about issues of gay rights. And the issues of gay rights then were stuff like inheritance, right? Whether you could visit your partner in the hospital. And I think as time went on, a lot of Republicans agreed on those issues. You find very few Republicans who don't think gay people should be able to visit their partners in the hospital, let's say. But nowadays, the LGBT issues have transformed into trans issues and such as people who were born men competing athletically or drag queen story hour or strip clubs for children, drag queen shows for children. And I think while even a lot of the left is not with them on those issues, the only people pushing those issues are people on the left, you know, largely Democrats. So I think while I agree that the Democrats today are best described as left liberals, liberals and establishment people. And they're not, they're not socialists. They're not communists. You, even Bernie Sanders never talked about the workers controlling the means of production, right? Bernie Sanders is only a democratic, is only a socialist in his own mind, uh, not in his politics. Right, right. And I agree with that. But he's clearly not on the right. No, he's a tradition. No, I mean, he is basically Hubert Humphrey or George McGovern. Um, He's, uh, you know, a man who could have been the Democratic nominee uh, 40 years ago, but not, obviously, that's not permitted. Well, he could have been if the DNC had kept their thumbs off the scale. Uh, But the, you know, that's not allowed now. But yeah, the the whole, the 50-yard line of of, uh, American electoral politics has shifted dramatically to the right over the years. Now, now I would say, though, it's shifted towards the establishment. It's not the the 50-yard lines, you call it. I'm seeing more extremism because, on one hand, I think think Republicans have become more libertarian broadly. Would you agree with that? I think that's true. No, I think that's true, and I think— Trump um, sort of uh, is a is a is a reflection of that, and you know, I mean, you know, when you were saying that about like the trans issues, you know, I mean, the problematic part here for liberals because we're really talking about like social liberalism here, right? Uh, you know, social right. issues. Um, the issue is with with like, for example, uh, whether a trans man can use should be able to use a woman's bathroom or whether. Uh, a trans man should be allowed to compete in in women's sports is that it pits two historically disadvantaged groups against one another, women and trans people. 
so that's the problem. I mean, these issues, like when you talk about the early days of of the gay rights movement, you know, there's no opponent. There's, you know, no one is like the idea that a, a, a you know a gay man can visit his husband or his partner in the hospital. That doesn't conflict with anyone. It doesn't hurt anyone. Doesn't can potentially hurt anyone. Uh, so I think it it was easier as within the left and within liberalism and within uh, society in general to be able to sort of say, okay, all right, that's going to happen, and for that progress to be made. But you know, now you're talking about issues like, well, you know, I mean, I'm sorry, but I think uh, you know, both the like in the case of the bathroom. Uh, you know, I, I I feel for both the trans the trans uh, the trans woman who is not uh, well, you know, is not going to feel comfortable in the men's room, uh, and who is being banned from the women's room. But I also feel for the cis woman who uh, is going to be intimidated by the trans woman who's in you know who was born a man. So I you know that's a it's that conflict that causes the, that has is where you know we have this is an issue that has not been resolved. I'm not sure if it's resolvable or not, but it certainly hasn't been resolved yet. And it seems to me the uh, solution to that issue would have been, and I understand the problems with this, but architectural. If you had at uh, department stores or whatever, individual restrooms, for instance, the restrooms used by children, an individual restroom as opposed to a group restroom architecturally would, to some extent, solve that problem. But I don't think the government should mandate that. But do you see what I'm saying? Oh, yeah, well, totally true. And, uh, you know, for example, um, I dropped my uh, my son off in, in, at his college dorm. He's a, he's a freshman. And in his dorm, which is, um, uh, which is you know, co-ed, uh, the, the restrooms are completely co-ed, right? So, Basically, even though they're old, formerly either boys or girls restrooms from whenever the dorm was built in the 1960s, uh, you know, they're just, it's all completely co That's another way to sort of retrofit everything. But I imagine it makes some, you know, uh, particularly women, but perhaps some men as well, feel uncomfortable. Clearly, the oneer is the way to go. <laughs> you know, that, that solves the problem. You can go in by yourself, lock the door by yourself. That does solve the problem. And I think, uh, for instance, and I understand it because Marx obviously was critical of capitalism, but I, I would say Marx, and I, you, you know about Marx, but I'm not asking you to defend his position. I would say what Marx was talking about for capitalism is, is not what we have today. He was talking about people working in factories, and it's a very different system. And I would say if you're a barista at Starbucks and some of them are unionizing, you're facing a very different set of problems. And I'm putting problems in air quotes all of a sudden uh, than a person who was working at a factory in the 19th century. Do you see my point? Oh, well, no, there's no question. I mean, uh, the you know, the I although I would say that the the basic nature of uh, you know of of the of the worker being exploited and and alienated from his or her labor um, is still there. Um, you know the uh, the issues of value added uh, and all that and productivity are still there. 
Uh, but yeah, the problems are different. It, it's a different. It's a different thing. I mean, you know, uh, I would say that, for example, a computer coder uh, is basically indistinguishable from a factory worker, really, in terms of economic relationship to their employer. But they're made to feel because of the the fact that they need, you know, a college degree, maybe a master's degree, and they need technical expertise that, you know, a factory worker did not need to get the job. Uh, you know, that person is essentially, you know, they, they're in the, they think they're, they might think that they're a white collar worker. They might feel like they have more of a stake in their, um, in, in their employer. In, but that's, of course, not true. But they, but definitely things look and feel very different than they did in, you know, an 1820s factory in northern England. And I would say the other difference is, it seems to me, like in the early days of the labor movement, they were facing actual dangerous physical conditions. The people who were unionized were coal miners, or as you say, factory workers in very dangerous sweatshops. And I would say... In America, in plenty of parts of the world, workers still face that. Agreed? Well, sure. I mean, yeah. Well, first of all, sweatshops are still very much a thing, in uh, particularly in the developing world. But hey, I can Lee, I can bring you to, to some in Queens. I used to my studio used to be in a building that was right next door to sweatshops. I mean, they're still right there, like uh, Queens Plaza, that area. You'll see the workers. Uh, they have a certain look, <laughs> a certain haggard look, and many of them are. Uh, you know, Chinese and you or Korean and you see them, you know, after like getting off, kicking off work at six o'clock at night, they're still around. But of course, obviously, that is not the future or really even much of the present of work in the United States. Well, and and that brings up another issue, believe it or not, which is immigration. I think one of the places where the left has really lost it is the issue of immigration, because I guarantee you a lot of those workers at the sweatshop were not here legally. And that makes them ripe for exploitation by employers. Often employers don't like the fact so much that they have to pay them less of a wage, but they don't have to follow any safety standards or any labor standards. And by embracing open borders, I think the left made a huge mistake. And uh, well, I, I agree with you. I agree with you, Lee. I mean, one of the things yeah. is, I mean, the, the left has abandoned, really has abandoned workers. And that's a big reason why Trump won in 2016. And, um, you know, in, in the Rust Belt, uh, they know it, right? I mean, with these free trade agreements. But that's totally true. I mean, open border policy, I think, is completely nonsensical um, for Really, I, I don't know how anyone, right or left or in between, can defend this. I mean, we have the United States is a nation state, and the, one of the major defining uh, aspects of a nation state is that it has defined borders that it can defend and that it controls. I mean, you know, yeah, you, you might have stamps and currency and stuff like that and a, and a standing army, although you don't have to have a standing army to be a nation state. Um, but you you know it helps. But you know if we if if you have a porous border the way that 
you know, existed between, say, Afghanistan and Pakistan for decades during the 80s and 90s, you're not really a nation state. You're really a failed state. It literally makes no sense at all for, for any country to, you know, I mean, we can make an exception for, like, say, the EU. They've all decided not to, you know, they, they have a, they have a, a, a you ha, you, if you're in the EU, you can drive from France to Belgium, let's say, and there's no border check. But they've made that agreement. But, but, of, but otherwise, you know, except for that, there's really, you're not, we're, we're not acting like an actual country when we don't guard our border and control who comes across. And so that brings us to your mayor, Eric Adams. What do you th- make of him complaining about, do you understand, I, I know you, you mentally grasp it, but do you understand the motivation for Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, in sending busloads of illegal immigrants to New York and Washington and saying basically, like, you're in favor of open borders, immigration, welcome, have some immigrants. Adams is now complaining about that. What do you make of that, Ted? Well, I think, here's the thing. I think there's no, as usual in the two-party system, uh, there's there's no glory uh, to, be, to be seen on anyone's side here. Um, look, Abbott has a legitimate and uh, he has a legitimate beef. Uh, the feds are don't care about the border, and they're not. And Texas is paying the price. I mean, so is California and Arizona and New Mexico, right? But Texas is probably paying the biggest price these days um, for that policy. But his beef is with Biden, not with the mayor of New York City. I mean, what, it's ridiculous. Like whenever Adams complains to hear Abbott say, "Well, you know." This is Biden's policy, so therefore they should be happy. Like the only thing that Mayor Adams has, and I think he's Mayor Adams is a terrible mayor. But the only thing that the only thing that Mayor Adams has in common with Joe Biden is that they're both members of the same political party. That's it. And it's like so it's it's sophistry on the part of Abbott to say that like somehow you know it this should be Adams's problem. Um, it should be Biden's problem. And if he was shipping them to D.C., although it's not like that would really affect Biden either, it would make more sense to me. But on the other hand, um, you know, I think Adams always, is, you know, it's true that New York is a sanctuary city. Uh, we Look, New York has 8 million people. Uh, we, are, we are a city of immigrants. Many of them are undocumented. This is not a problem for us. And I think it would be a better look for Adams to say, you know, he should, he could jujitsu this and say, you know, we will always be, we will always welcome people in need, particularly Hondurans and people like that who are political, seeking political asylum. New York has always had an open uh, door policy to people like that. Send more. We, we need more. That would probably make Abbott shut up. <laughs> you know what I mean? So um, I, I think it's kind of like, Adams is an idiot, and uh, you know he 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 pretty much hasn't done a damn anything right since he became mayor. Uh, and this is you know his poor his his failure to see the opportunity that Abbott is presenting him is uh, you know is causing is is kind of a reflection of his stupidity. Now we recently had two big events: the anniversary of nine eleven and the death of Queen Elizabeth, and I'm going to tie them in and run one of my pet theories by you, Ted. 
I would say a lot of people who the queen did not have, she had a political role, kind of, but not a clear political role and not clear political beliefs. And I'm opposed to monarchy. But I would say for a lot of people in England, her her importance was symbolic. And she rep- represented stability and uh, England. And in that sense, I will say the Queen Elizabeth is like the Statue of Liberty. If on 9-11, they had struck not the World Trade Center, but the Statue of Liberty, the Statue of Liberty has no military value and has no economic value, really. And it would have been a lot less casualties. But I think symbolically, removing the Statue of Liberty from the skyline of New York would have been more devastating the psyche of the American people because it represented a kind of stability. And I don't think of, I can't think of anyone who occupies the same position in Americans' minds that the Queen does for the Brits. Do you you see what I'm saying, Ted? Any thoughts on that? 100%. I mean, there's no question about it. I mean, um, you know, I mean, like you, I think monarchy is a I'm against it, and I, I think it's an antiquated and wasteful institution. Um, and, you know, kind of completely, obviously, the embodiment of uh, of privilege and inappropriate privilege and, and waste of, of taxpayer money and serves no purpose. But that said, um, you know, I mean, she did, she did, she did a great job, uh, you know, with, she did a great job running something that should not exist, but she did a great job. No question. You know, I mean, it's, I don't think anyone could have done better. Certainly none of her kids. (laughs) Certainly not. Right. Yeah. And, and if, if they had taken down the Statue of Liberty, I think it would have also had a huge effect on people of our generation, but especially on our parents or grandparents. Right. And I think, I th- yeah, it like reminds me of, it's like my mom, you know, I'm, my mom died a, a few years ago and I was really happy that she had dementia and was almost dead when she, uh, when the, when Notre Dame, the cathedral of Notre Dame burned in Paris, uh, it would have yes, just been I'd like, just absolutely brutal. She was French. It would have just killed her. She would have just not been able to stand it. And, uh now, going back to Adams, you've got, not you personally, but your city, New York, has, I would say, a crime problem. And it's, it's particular. Everyone's seen these videos of people being attacked with hammers on the subway. And I've, I've been in New York, you, you, you know, I lived 40 years ago in Westchester, and we're going to see all the time. And at that time, you remember when you used to, drive through the Bronx and regularly see cars on fire on the side of the road 40 years ago, do, 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 late 70s, early 80s. Do you remember that period, Ted? I, I remember it very, very vividly. I remember arriving at JFK and driving, uh, you'd leave the, the, if you took a taxi or a car from JFK on the Van Wick Expressway, uh, you would see yes. the, the car, you know, cars on fire and 
people sometimes like literally like hanging out and warming themselves over the burning fire, the burning cars. But what what do you think should be done? Because I think this level of criminality is qualitatively different than what we've seen in recent years. It's much more violent. What do you think should be done, Dead? Well, first of all, um, look, I'm in favor of the uh, no bail. For, I mean, the eliminating uh, the bail for nonviolent crimes. But apparently the city's been not enforcing that and they've not been imposing bail for violent crimes. So that needs to change. Uh, the biggest problem we, we have is there's no police at all on the streets. Um, there are no there are no patrol cars. There are no street patrols. There are no subway police. Uh, there there's no evidence whatsoever that there are any cops anywhere. Uh, sometimes you see them uh, in clusters. Occasionally, uh, you know, on a corner, they're all on their phones and they're sort of hobnobbing with each other. Um, and well, I know Adams issued Ted, a dictat against time. that. But Jason Goodman has said the same thing. So I think you're onto something there, Ted. As usual, great conversation with the great Ted Rawl. And thanks so much to Ed Martin for his great appearance. Thanks to all our callers, Joshua, Brave, Owl Killer, and thanks to Rod. We'll be back tomorrow on Backstory. Backstory.